Well, today's topic is about as personal as we can get. It's that there isn't a person here who isn't affected by this same issue that weighed so heavily on Paul's mind and emotions. Whether you're in here and you're nine years old or whether you're 90 years old or in between, you and I deal with this topic on a regular basis. Sure, some are affected by it more than others, but there is something here that we are all have to live with and deal with daily. It affects our view of ourselves, our view of others, our view of what we do and accomplish in life. It indirectly reaches into the areas of self-worth and confidence and much more. Let's see if you spot this specific point, this primary issue as we read through our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Open your Bibles with me as we study together, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and look for this very personal matter that so impacted Paul just like it does us today, beginning in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, Paul says? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You spot it in there? What, what is the big issue that Paul is having to address in these six verses? There are a number of terms we could probably use, but the one that comes to my mind is our validity. Our authority the value of what we have to say and what we do and achieve. We're talking about credentials. We're talking about letters of commendation. So what makes you the best person for the job? Prove yourself. So what makes you such a good mom or a good dad or teacher? Prove it. Why should anyone listen to what you have to say or think about this issue? Prove yourself to us. This is what Paul was hearing. His apostleship was being challenged and undermined. When we pause and think about this, we realize that there is no end, no end to the daily situations in which we are challenged and called upon to prove ourselves. When was the last time your opinion was challenged or your beliefs were challenged? When was the last time you found yourself defending your actions or your words? If you're a parent, you only need to think back to the car ride here, right? Who says you're qualified to be a board member? Who gives you the right to tell me what's right and wrong? We're all challenged and expected to prove ourselves, our validity, our authority on a regular basis. And when that happens, particularly when our faith and practice is challenged, when it's questioned, which is the context of what we have here, maybe even mocked, 
How do we prove that we are indeed doing what we're supposed to be doing and saying what we're supposed to be saying? How do we prove that we do genuinely have something good to offer? How do we prove that we are making a positive difference in our community? It comes as no surprise that Paul would bring up this, this issue of commendation and proof immediately after addressing the issues of peddling in the church. The church is only a few years old and they already have peddlers, people trying to sell the Word of God, people trying to profit from it, people seeking prestige. Pride was just alive back then as it is today. No surprise that Paul would go here right after talking about counterfeits and fakes, sneaky salesmen in the church. That's not at all what the Word of God was about or the ministry of the Word. Paul is accused on every major point. His opposition left no stone unturned. Not only was his apostleship challenged, his methods were challenged, his motives were challenged, his word was challenged, his personal integrity was challenged, etc. And he had to prove himself. They were calling for it. How Paul went about proving and defending himself all throughout this book is most exemplary for us. These Holy Spirit-inspired letters to the churches were not just written for them, they were written for us. They are packed with lessons on how we should think and live the Christian life, particularly when we're questioned now, challenged. Right at the start here, let me give you the, the primary answer for today's study. When you and I are challenged, the proof is in the people. It's not the only proof, but it's one of the primary proofs. And Paul is making a strong case with it in these verses. The proof is in the people. Let's pray, and then we'll soak in these truths from God's Word. Heavenly Father, no one wants to be wrong. Lord, for your glory, we want to be right. We want to speak truth. We want to know that the calls we're making each day are the right call. The decisions, the values, the standards, the priorities, the words that come out of our mouth, especially in difficult situations. We want to know that we're doing what's right. We ask that you would give us discernment in these things. Discernment so that in the end, people can see that your word was right in us. Your ways were better. Your thoughts were higher. Open our eyes to spiritual truth and give us the grace to put it into practice, we pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning in verse 1, Paul hits this issue square on. He puts the issue front and center by asking two questions. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? Paul is basically asking, how do I have to prove my apostleship to you? Do I have to sit here and talk about myself? Or do I need someone to send you a letter of recommendation? Or do I need you to sit down and write that letter for yourself so you can see that what I'm doing is right? 
that I really am a good missionary? That the words I'm saying are true? Do I need you to write that letter to me so that I can feel better about myself? Proven in what I'm doing? The answer is a rhetorical no. Paul is framing this portion of the letter in this difficult topic by basically saying, telling you all the good things I'm doing isn't going to prove anything to you or to anyone else. Getting others to sing my praises and talk about my accomplishments isn't going to prove me to you. I don't need you to write a letter of reference for me. Why? The proof isn't just in what people say. Verse 2, you are our letter. The proof is in the people. What a stunning statement. It's the changed lives. It's the healing that people experience when they're wounded. It's the hope they find when they had no hope. It's the joy, it's the real power in their lives that proves how effective we are at living and sharing the Christian life. Let's go straight to the bullseye of the application for this entire text so we can see where we're going for the rest of our study. Here's the key question for today. Whose life is God changing through you today? How many people are experiencing salvation and courage and triumph and healing because God brought you into their life? I ask myself these same questions. We have to ask them. Life is too short and eternity is too long to play religious games. You know this at least as well as I do. Paul says, if someone wants the proof of my ministry, if someone wants a letter of commendation, I point at you. You are our letter. Your life was changed. Friends, who's your letter? Who's my letter? Whose life has been changed because God brought us across their path? We can probably all think of a few people in the past. Praise the Lord. But we can't live in the past. What about today? Paul says, you are our letter right now. This is present tense. You are standing living proof of our ministry of the gospel. One of my great concerns for my own Christian walk and for our church family is that we not be so focused on personal holiness that we neglect others' salvation and healing as well. That we become so intent on personal sanctification that we neglect evangelism. So intent on our own life that we neglect others. The issue of self-centeredness plagues the world. We see it everywhere. But that virus also sneaks into the church as well, sometimes in the most apparently righteous of ways. We must beware self-centered, self-dominated Christianity. When Paul was accused, he didn't just say, can't you see how holy I'm living? I really am being a good Christian and doing the best I can. Yes, he did say that. Chapter 1, verse 12. We studied that thoroughly. A stellar personal defense. But his defense, his proof of effective 
authoritative Christian living and ministry didn't stop there. He says, and your life has been changed through me as well. Personal holiness is mandatory, but so is outreach. It's not enough to be a good Christian. We must be making good Christians. What do we call this? Discipleship. It's the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18. Go and make disciples of all nations. Talking about followers of Christ, learners of Christ, imitators of Christ, those who carry the baton. That's why disciple-making is in our church's vision statement. We looked at this briefly in our membership class last Sunday. Our church vision is to disciple individuals toward Christ-likeness. Christian friend, how's your disciple-making going? I don't doubt that we're all striving to be good disciples. But what about our disciple-making? How's my disciple-making going? One might think, Chris has it easy. He just has to preach every Sunday. It's his job. I have to remind myself regularly that it is very possible to preach and not be making disciples. Because disciple-making is never fully accomplished in the pulpit-pew relationship. It's also accomplished in the one-on-one, caring, serving, loving, sympathizing, celebrating, doing life together relationships. It's in the equipping of others to speak and lead and serve effectively as ministers of God. There's a tremendous amount of discipleship that can only happen when I get out from behind the pulpit. Pastor Mark is an example of this to me. Many have been touched, of you have been touched by him outside of this pulpit. Praise the Lord. The same goes for you, though. When you salt leaders take off your salt hat, Sunday school teachers take off your teacher hat, whatever official hat you're wearing in the church, and when you relate and engage deeply in a personal, face-to-face, faith-building relationship, one that goes outside the walls of this building. That's why we believe so strongly in the salt groups, our small groups, saints applying living truth. But even those are just the starting point for personal fellowship and ministry. Why do you think Paul wanted so desperately to get back to Corinth? It's because a sermon or a letter was not enough. He needed to be there for them. He needed to be there with them. So I ask you and myself, how's your disciple-making going? Who's your letter of commendation today? We may think we're good Christians. Others may even say we're good Christians, but the proof is in the people, the changed lives. That's the theme for today, the challenge for today. Let's look at the rest of the verses now for some tools on how to go about effective, life-changing disciple-making. Verse 2 continues, You are our letter written in our hearts. This speaks very simply to the personal, the highly personal relationship that Paul had with God's people. This wasn't a letter written on the church attendance records or in the annual budget. It wasn't written on a membership list somewhere or a letter of commendation from some well-known religious leader, missionary, or pastor. 
The lives of these people were written on Paul's heart. We studied this a couple weeks ago. A true disciple maker pours their heart and soul into relationships. It's one thing to pour our heart and soul into truth. And praise God when that truth changes our life. But it cannot stop there. Effective ministry happens when that truth changes someone else. Forgive me for touching on the word relationship so much, but I have no intent of letting up. Paul doesn't let up throughout this book. He's the one bringing it up. The proof of our ministry is not in what we're doing. It's in the lives we're impacting, both directly and indirectly. Some of you can't come here and work in the church, but you make those phone calls when the encouragement is needed most. You can't wait to get the email that goes out from the prayer chain because you can't wait to go to your prayer closet and open up a few verses and just pray those back to God for that person. There's so much ministry, so much impact potential. But we have to remember that God will not commend you or me for cutting the church grass. He will commend us for blessing people and drawing glory to Him through His creation. He won't commend us for teaching a class. He'll commend us for speaking truth into people's lives that makes a difference. The list goes on. There's so many duties and activities and ministries and programs in the church, and in and of themselves, we must recognize they are near worthless. It's what changes people that makes them so valuable, so important to God and hopefully to us. Relationships matter, not activities. We don't want to be busy for God for the sake of busyness. There is no proof in that. There's a big difference between being the busiest person in the church and the individual who is touching many lives. Paul makes such a stunning truth statement when he says, your life is written on my heart. He goes on to say, known and read by all men. When people are changed, others see it. They can't help but see it. You can't hide true joyfulness true hope, true freedom. When a person is liberated from a past guilt and shame, they can't hide their celebration. When a person conquers fear, everyone around them sees the difference in their countenance and in their voice, in their behavior. All men know and read it, Paul said. I don't have to mail a letter out. Everybody sees it. Paul now puts proof in its proper theological perspective. Verse 3, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. I tell you, the deeper I got into this study this past couple weeks, the, the, the more excited I got. These are incredible phrases. Being manifested that you are a letter of Christ. 
Paul didn't write the letter of their life. You and I don't actually change people. We know this, but I fear we often forget what we know to be true, at least to some degree. We sometimes live and think and behave and respond emotionally as though we have to change people. After 20 years of preaching, I find one thing to be one of the most liberating truths in the pulpit, and that is that I do not have to change people. God changes people. God is responsible. God is the miracle worker. You don't even want to know what happens when I try to write people's letter. I write poor letters no matter how hard and no matter how sincerely I try. Paul says, when all men know and read the letter of your life and see the radical change that happened, it is manifested, it is revealed, it is made very clear that you are a letter of Christ. Christ wrote your story. The Bible changed your life. It wasn't Pastor Mark, it wasn't Mike Guthrie, it wasn't your Sunday school teacher or any other ministry leader. It, was, it wasn't Discovery Baptist Church. God helped no one to walk away from this place saying, that church changed my life. Or at least if they do, may what they really mean is God changed me through them. When your attention is alert to the through us and through you statements that Paul uses all throughout this letter, you realize how important that factor is, but it is God who uses us to change people. What did Paul say next in the verse? You are a letter of Christ cared for by us. That's the distinction. We're just the messenger. Your Bible says delivered by us. We're just the messenger. The privileged messenger, the caretaker, the servant, as we'll see in verse 6. That's the divinely commissioned, wonderful, joyful, thrilling part we get to have in God's life-changing work in people. We're caretakers in the garden of spiritual fruit that He is growing. Not because He needs us, but because He chooses us. This is an amazing thought, amazing truth of Scripture. God wants us. He delights in us. He loves to prove himself to us and through us. He wants to be involved in our lives. And he wants our lives to be involved in him and his work, his amazing kingdom, eternal work. What a privileged relationship. But God chooses us. He just wants us to be involved. I, I, I can't help but think of my kids. I didn't need Toby, my three-year-old, to help me take that screw out of the wall. But I wanted him to. I wanted him to, to, to try. Just the thrill of seeing him try, even though it took five times as long. You know, seeing the joy on his face, that sense of accomplishment and figuring it out. The privilege of holding dad's big electric drill. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I wish you could just sit around the campfire and reminisce over times that your son or your daughter or your niece or nephew or one of the kids in your classroom 
was given a little assi- assignment, a little responsibility. You saw them just blossom in it. One of the greatest thrills of a teacher. I see several teachers nodding their head to me. That's a thrill. Is God so different? One way of looking at the how's your disciple-making going question is this. How's your caring for others going? These are real simple terms. I love the simplicity of Scripture. How's your caring for others going? Who have you and I reached out to in the past week in their time of need? Taking time to chat with on the phone or visit in person or, or just share a Bible verse with, etc. Lend a helping hand. Here's the difference, though. There are a lot of people out there who can do good. You don't have to be a Christian to do good. The difference is that Christians care for the sake of the letter being written by Christ. They care about what God is doing in that person. That's why they invest themselves. Our caring is focused ultimately and primarily on the other person's faith, not just their practical well-being. Their firm faith, as Paul talked about a couple studies ago. At the heart of every friendship that we have in the church, the ultimate goal should be to build up each other's faith. Scripture calls this edifying one another, building them up, strengthening them, supporting them. I see David Coots over here. They, you know, they had a baby a week ago. I think that was up in the rolling announcements. This would be a good time to give them applause. <laughs> if we didn't already. Uh, but... Um, Celebrate life. We love it. We love it. But I think, of the, I think of the coots. People have come and brought meals to them. It wasn't just so they could be fed. From what I understand, either Melissa or David. Melissa, great meal planner. Great meal planner. She didn't go in, into this unprepared. But we take meals so that God would be praised and their faith would be encouraged. Their faith would be strengthened by the love of others. At the end of the day, all we want to hear David and Melissa say is, God is so good through you. You and I have the privilege of caring for the letter that Christ is writing in people's lives. Isn't that a tremendous thought? Tremendous responsibility. But he gives us the grace also to do it. That's an even more tremendous thought. How is our caring going? About this life letter, Paul goes on to say, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul is emphasizing the spiritual aspect of the proof that he's talking about in this portion of his letter. He says, don't look for a letter where ink came out of a pen and made its mark. I'll show you people where the spirit of the living God made his mark on their hearts. That is an amazing thought. You have to love the poetic beauty of scripture. We're not looking for a letter written on paper or even tablets of stone. This must have graded against those who were still holding to Jewish law. They knew what tablets of stone he was referring to. 
He says, we're not looking for the Ten Commandments written on a rock. I would like to have known Paul. It's just his sense of humor. He's got a way of saying things. He says, we're looking for the gospel of Christ written on people's hearts. The proof is in the people. It's not what we think of ourselves. It's not in the accolades and applause that people may give. Far from it, it's in the lives who were changed by the spirit of the living God through us. There it is again. More on the tablets of stone in a minute, but verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. That's him saying, that's our proof. That's our confidence. That's our defense. That is our self-worth, or better understood as God-worth in us. He says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. The, The wording of Scripture is so precise. Paul didn't say, such confidence we have through Christ in ourselves, or such confidence we have in Christ in our ministries, or such confidence we have in Christ or through Christ in you, or in anything else. Yes, there's a place for confidence in others. Paul just talked about that in verses prior. We said that in chapter 2. But even that confidence in others is not actually confidence in them. It's confidence in what? The grace of God in them. Tremendous distinction again. And Paul's saying the same thing here. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. When it comes to the work of the ministry, and even the simple living out of the Christian life, all eyes go to God. If Christ doesn't write that letter, we are sunk. If the Spirit of the living God does not intervene and breathe fresh life, new life, we can give up and start crying right now in the church. But no, God does intervene. And Christ does change lives. He writes the best letters of commendation. He does prove the message we share and the lives that we care for because God is faithful. He's unchanging. He is holy. He is love. And He is just. And because of all that and more, we live confidently. Yes, we fall short. We fail. That's why our confidence cannot be in ourselves. It must not be in ourselves. We're confident in God. And God isn't surprised or set back or defeated, as we talked about last week, by any of our mistakes or weaknesses or sins. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. That is the believer's confidence. If you and I are searching for validity, for true confidence and a sense of value and worth in us, if we're often plagued by a sense of failure or discouragement, these two chapters, three chapters of 2 Corinthians are a bedrock foundation to sink our minds into. Take the tent pegs of truth that we are coming across all throughout these verses and drive them into the ground. Meditate. Pray over them. Memorize them. Claim them. Pour your faith into them and obey them. Believe them. And begin experiencing the true confidence that Paul found in his darkest, 
most difficult moments. Paul is not writing this letter, as you know, from a time of great ease and quote-unquote success in his life. He is writing from the midst of turmoil, deep turmoil. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul now says here in verse 4, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Praise God. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. How many times does Paul have to say that, right? A lot. Because we're human. Because we need to hear it. Because we need more faith. We're not done growing. We do get off course. We do become self-sufficient. It's God who does the work, not us. Self-sufficiency, you understand this. Self-sufficiency is evidenced by the assumption that I have accomplished something spiritual in the church. Or even in myself. It's the subtle thought, look at what I have done. Of course, we would never say it. It's the thought that reveals the self-sufficiency. The sense of proof we find in what we are doing. That satisfaction uh, runs such a fine line between good and evil. It's also evidenced by the improper stress or worry that I'm not changing someone's life. We often need to remind ourselves that we're messengers, not miracle workers. Proper theology gives us a proper view of witnessing and caring for others. A proper view of teaching and preaching. A proper view of parenting and marriage. We're messengers, not miracle workers. But there's a miracle worker in us and in the message. Paul continues, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. He says our adequacy is from God. How many times does Paul have to say that? A lot. It's not us. It's God. He, it's God who makes us capable. It's such interesting wording in the scripture here. Who makes us sufficient. Who makes us adequate. And there's the distinction Yes, we do get the joy of seeing lives changed, but it's not our actions that change them. It is God empowering us to bring about change through Christ. I like to look at Paul's letter analogy this way. If Christ is the author and the Holy Spirit is the ink and the heart is the paper, then what are we? We're just the mailman. We're just, we're just a caretaker in the garden. We're just the servant, as he says. We're just the tool. We're not the talent. With a servant, we're not sovereign. Paul said in no uncertain terms, our adequacy is from God. 
if any of us is effectively getting the job done to whatever degree, it's because God made us effective and capable and adequate to serve. Paul defines very intent intentionally, the Holy Spirit defines very intentionally that we are servants of a new covenant. And that new covenant is the gospel message. It's the message of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God come to save the world from their sins. That's who we serve, not just what we serve. The message points to the person, Jesus Christ. And we know that this new covenant is a personal promise. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just a truth. It's a life-changing new covenant between God and man. Imagine that. And that promise, that covenant was fulfilled and is fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9-13 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Speaking of salvation, speaking of eternity, speaking of heaven and hell. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It doesn't matter who you are. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are servants of that new message, that new covenant, that new promise of God. And it is God who makes us adequate to serve. Verse 5 continues, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Think about it. We are servants of the Spirit, not the letter or the law, the Mosaic law and all its traditions and rules, not even the ten laws written on stone by God himself. Paul says we are no longer slaves to the law, but to the Spirit. And I point out that it's, it's not even the letter of the new covenant, but the person of the new covenant, God himself, the holy living Spirit that gives life and is who we serve. Friends, let us not look down our noses at the Jews of Jesus' time who proudly lived by the letter of the law. Christians often make the same mistake of living by the letter of the new covenant, but their heart is not in it. God give us wisdom. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Oh that, we had time, oh, that we had time to study Romans chapter 8 right now. 8 verses 1 through 4, which says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation. That's the death penalty for sinners, the eternal death penalty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life. See these terms there? They're all related. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, speaking of the Old Testament law, weak as it was through the flesh, meaning mankind failed to perfectly keep the law, God did, 
sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Paul says the letter kills but the spirit gives life the spirit of the living God. We understand that the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the rules of God are a schoolmaster. It's a teacher. It taught humanity that they are sinners in need of a savior because no one could live up to the law. No one could be as holy as God is holy. It means we all need a sacrifice, someone to pay our penalty. Otherwise, we pay it in eternity of death. We all need a savior. We all need to do what, we need God to do what only God can do. And only he can write the letter of forgiveness on your heart. Only he can write the letter of love and hope and joy and eternal life on your heart. Bringing this back home, are you and I a caretaker of the letter that God is writing in other people's lives? Are we servants of the message he is writing, the life story he is writing in others? The proof is in the people. Are we adequate servants through whom the Holy Spirit is giving life to others? I don't doubt that many, perhaps even the majority of us here, have received everlasting life. But have we and are we giving it to others? Not all servants are serving. Not all Christians are making disciples. Not like they should. When Paul was accused of these very things and even so much more, when his credibility was attacked, he said, look at the people. They are my letter of commendation, the letter that Christ himself wrote. That's the punch to the statement. That life letter of change, I didn't write that. Christ wrote that. That's my proof. If you have an argument, argue with the one who really changed their life. Paul knew how to find a good defense, a good source of confidence. I trust that you and I are both challenged and encouraged as we've studied God's Word this morning. My heart cry now is, Lord, help us to be doers and not just hearers. I want you and me to be encouraged in serving God, knowing that He is indeed accomplishing, a little bit at a time, Daily, a life-changing work in others who we are lovingly sharing God with. A life-changing work when we faithfully plant and care for the seeds of God's truth and love in others. And if we're not serving in disciple-making like we should, and I'll be the first to say, God knows I can do more and should do more then may we get serious about accepting the challenge and the command that Scripture has given us. God has called all of us 
to ministry. Don't run from that calling. That's an awesome calling. That's that's a privilege. That's a joy. God has called us to care for the letter he is writing other people's lives. At home, at work, in the church, of course, everywhere in the world, as Paul keeps saying. I know that hearing these lofty spiritual truths and goals is sometimes hard to put into practice come uh, Monday morning. Caring for others in a faith-building, God-trusting way is not an easy task. It will cost you to do this. It will cost me to do this. It takes time and effort and a lot of God-focus versus self-strength. And and receiving that caring is sometimes even harder for some of us. Letting others minister to us. But let us not overcomplicate the Christian life. Be in the Word, know the Word, trust the Word, and obey the Word. Look for simple opportunities that God brings our way to care for others in a faith-building way. I try hard to find, it more, to find more complicated truths than that, but it's difficult to find. Christianity really is a simple calling. Just care for the letter that Christ is writing in the lives of others around us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing thought that you give us the privilege. You equip us. You call us, you give us everything we need to be a part of this amazing work that you are doing in people's lives. What could be more special, more meaningful, more meaningful, more purposeful than that? Seeing lives change, and not just change for today, not just the thrill of seeing someone make it through a challenge in life, but knowing, Lord, that you have given them the gift of eternal life. Lord, help us not to be so concerned with our personal holiness that we neglect the grace of God for others. We'll be concerned with ourselves so much that we forget we are messengers. As Mark and Nancy have reminded us, it's not a 50-50. You do call us to a full devotion to personal sanctification, but you also call us to be fully devoted to our caring for others and the spiritual work that you're doing in their lives. God, I ask that today you would give me and this church family a fresh filling of the power of God, a fresh and strengthened zeal for taking your pure and simple and holy word and sharing it with others. Lord, we want to look back and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh God, help us to be a people who are serving. Thank you that Christ came not to be served, but to serve us. May we follow that awesome example. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.